Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're new here this morning or watching for the first time, uh, we're finishing up a series through the letter of Paul to Corinth called 2 Corinthians. And this, uh, the theme through our series has been strength and weakness. And this morning's theme in particular is strength in weakness through preparation. We find out in the text this morning that if we know Christ, we are in a very unique season of preparation. Paul uses a metaphor in 2 Corinthians 11 to give us a, a unique perspective on the Christian life. And the metaphor he uses is first century Jewish betrothal. Now, that's an old-fashioned word. We use the word engagement. But the fact is, betrothal is very, very different than our engagement. You need to know that in the first century, uh, a Jewish marriage had two stages. First stage was called the betrothal, which we're going to look at this morning. The second stage was called the wedding. Now, to kick off the betrothal, uh, the father would pay the the bride's father, uh, a dowry. And there are many parallels in Scripture uh, between the church, the bride, and this life for the Christian called the betrothal. For instance, God paid the dowry for us to be betrothed to Christ. And the price paid was Jesus himself. At the betrothal then, the uh, man and the woman were actually considered married. Uh, this is why Joseph, when he was betrothed to Mary, if he was going to divorce, divorce her for what he thought was unfaithfulness because she was pregnant and he'd had no relations with her, it, it was actually going to have to be a divorce because they were married. It just wasn't consummated yet. As a matter of fact, if a betrothed woman had her fiancé die, she was considered a widow. It was marriage. It just wasn't consummated yet. And so as Christians, we are betrothed, Paul says, to Christ. And we are to keep our virginity, our purity, through the betrothal period. Then during the betrothal, the husband would go to his father's house where he lived and prepare a room for himself and his bride. Jesus said in John 14, I go and prepare a room. In my father's house are many rooms. And if I go, I will come back and take you to be with me. That is betrothal language. And then the bride during the betrothal period would prepare herself with clothing or beauty treatments or get things ready for the home. And in Revelation 19, 7 and 8, it says the bride has made herself ready. During this time of preparation in the betrothal, then the time set for the groom to pick up the bride was set by the father. And the groom nor the bride knew when that was. 
And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 24, 36, the time has been set by my Father. And no one knows, not even the Son. And so the bride and the bridal party was to be ready at all times. The betrothal period lasted at least a year. But nobody knew except the Father when the time for the wedding would come. And then when the time was declared by the Father, He would tell the Son. The Son would then go to the bride's house and take His bride. They would have their wedding. They would have the wedding supper. And then they would consummate the marriage and live together as husband and wife. And of course, this is all through the New Testament, the book of Revelation, Revelation 19.9. There's the wedding supper of the Lamb. And in Revelation 21.2, that we actually celebrate in Christian marriage where the groom waits, the bride comes down out of heaven prepared for her husband. The entire Christian life can be seen in terms of betrothal. And we are to keep ourselves pure. Now the context is that there are some false teachers that are coming into Corinth and their teaching is leading the Corinthian church away from Christ and away from the gospel and away from Paul. And Paul is concerned that what he betrothed to Christ as a pure virgin is going to be compromised. So Paul engages in what he calls foolishness because we're only supposed to boast in the Lord, but Paul's going to boast in him, in his own ministry and what God has, has gifted to him. He joins the false teachers in their boasting because the Corinthians are listening to foolishness. So Paul says, since you're listening to foolishness, let me be a fool and boast as well. So with that as an introduction, let's all stand out of reverence for Christ and His Word and follow along as I read 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 to 15. This is God's Word. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from one the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things." Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. 
As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is God's word. He gave it to us because he loves us. And he wants to present us to Christ as a pure virgin. He does not want us to go after other loves by being deceived. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would enable us to understand this passage, understand how it applies to our lives today, and Lord, that we would, we would follow Jesus in absolute loyalty, love, and purity. We ask this in his name. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. So the way we prepare ourselves for our wedding day, the return of Christ, the new Jerusalem, is by guarding our hearts. In Proverbs 4.23, the author says, guard your heart above all things. Now, the heart is described in many ways in Scripture. It involves our thoughts, our emotions, our desires, and our choices. And if we're to be presented as a pure virgin after our betrothal to Jesus on our wedding day, then we need to keep our hearts pure. But keep in mind, as Jesus goes and prepares a place for us, He also, by His Spirit, is preparing us. So we guard our hearts, not through our own resources, not by our own strength or our own efforts, but by His grace and His Spirit. So three ways were to guard our hearts by His grace throughout this life, which is our betrothal period. First of all, guard your heart from seduction. That's one thing that people who are betrothed need to guard against, their hearts or their bodies being seduced by other lovers. Look at verse 2. Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy for you. In other words, a jealousy that God himself feels. Scripture clearly teaches that one of God's names is the jealous God. Now, we often look at jealousy as, as a vice, not a virtue. But there's a sense in which we are to guard and protect the love that we cherish above all things. God is a jealous God because He's jealous over us. He's jealous for our hearts. We sing a song, He is jealous for me, right? Love's like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight 
of his wind and mercy. Do you realize that when we are being tempted to be seduced by other loves in this world, that God is jealous over us because he loves us so much? And that, of course, is the refrain of the song. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. What guards us and protects us from seduction is understanding the enormity of of the love of God. Paul says the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God which is in Christ. In James 4, James writes that God places within us a spirit, the Holy Spirit, that yearns over us jealously. The Spirit of God is committed to our purity that we might present it as a pure virgin to Christ. Then Paul says in verse 2 that I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. A virgin is someone who hasn't given herself to anyone. But she is preserved in purity for one husband. Paul sees himself in a sense as the father of the bride. He planted the church at Corinth. And he wants not only for them to be betrothed, but to make it through the betrothal period in purity. And it's the role of the church to help guard our hearts against seduction. Look at verse 5. The false teachers in Corinth said that they were being sent by the super apostles. Now the super apostles are the same people that Paul calls the pillars of the church. He's talking about the apostles in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was looked upon by many churches as being the church. It had a lot of reputation behind it. And the super apostles were Peter, James, and John. Now, Peter, James, and John didn't consider themselves super apostles. And Paul didn't consider them super apostles. But these false teachers did consider them super apostles. And they were trying to seduce with their teaching by appealing to to the fact that they were sent by the super apostles. Now, in fact, they weren't sent by the super apostles. They came from the Jerusalem church, but they were trying to use the fact that they were at least in some way connected to the Jerusalem church to seduce the hearts of the Corinthians into false teaching. In other words, they were trying to seduce the Corinthians through celebrity status, through popularity contests. And folks, we see that seduction in our day as well. How many Christians are seduced by the latest celebrity preacher, the latest celebrity church, the latest celebrity teaching? We too must guard our hearts against such celebrity and popularism. These false teachers were maligning Paul. They were saying, Paul's not one of the apostles of the Jerusalem church. He's not really part of the key church, the church where it's really happening. As a matter of fact, Paul didn't see Jesus when Jesus walked the planet. Peter, James, and John did. So the Jerusalem church is the unique church, and they're the super apostles. And listen to us. 
because we're sent from them. And of course, that was a lie. They weren't sent, but it affected and seduced the Corinthians. Now, the reason why Paul's defending himself is because these false teachers, these false apostles, were teaching a different Jesus and a different spirit and a different gospel. Look at verse 4. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus other than the one we proclaimed, and then he goes on to say, you tolerate that just fine. Now, most likely the Jesus they were proclaiming was the Jesus that the Jews were looking for. Do you remember the Savior and the Messiah that the Jews were looking for? They were looking for a political Savior, a Savior of power who would deliver them from Rome. And oh, how many Christians today have been seduced by that false Jesus. Looking to nationalism. Looking to political power and influence. As if that's the Jesus that Paul preached. And people... It is not. How have you been tempted recently to seduction by a powerful political Jesus? And then it says in verse 4, if you received a different spirit than you received, The spirit that Paul preached was the spirit of the crucified Messiah. And people don't want a crucified Messiah. They want a victorious Messiah. They want a Messiah that's victorious in the way they think of victory. They want a Messiah who's going to bring comfort, not a cross. And how have you been tempted recently by a spirit of comfort rather than a spirit that leads to a crucified life, denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily, and following Jesus. Then verse 4 again, or if you accept a different gospel than the one you accepted. Now, we don't know the particular gospel that these false teachers were proclaiming. It was likely a gospel similar to the false gospel preached to the Galatians, that if you really want to be favored by God, you've got to become Jewish. You've got to follow the externals of Judaism. And folks, our flesh is as easily seduced by religiosity as it is by irreligiosity. And especially when we're going through times of difficulty, we are so prone to legalism because we're so fearful that things may happen to us when the world is unstable. That we think, well, to really make sure God blesses me, I've got to 
really make sure that I follow certain rules and regulations. And often those rules and regulations are simply rules of men, not rules of God. And rather than following and receiving a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, a spirit of freedom, we fall back into a spirit of bondage. How do you guard your heart from seduction? Will you keep your eyes on the beauty of your husband? You fix your eyes completely on Jesus and keeping yourself pure as a virgin for him alone. Look at verse 6. Paul says, even if I am skilled in speaking, and again the false teachers were mocking Paul because he was sort of geeky and wimpy looking and had a weak and squeaky voice. He says, I'm not so in knowledge. One of the ways we keep ourselves from seduction is by knowing the Scriptures. And so many people in our day in the church are practically, biblically, illiterate. And if you have a low knowledge and understanding of Scripture, then you are an easy target for seduction. Many people in the church today are very theologically shallow. And if you're theologically shallow or uninformed, then you are ripe for seduction. Counterfeit officers in Canada aren't trained in all the fakes. It would take forever. Counterfeit officers in Canada are trained to know the Canadian dollar inside out and upside down. They know everything there is to know about it. So when they see a fake, they can spot it in an instant. That is how we are to be with the Scriptures, how we are to be with the Jesus of the Scriptures. That's why we're going through the whole New Testament in our devotional this year. Let me encourage you to join us in that. Get in the Scriptures. Guard your heart from seduction. And then secondly, guard your heart from deception. Look at verse 3. Paul says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning... So you might be led astray. Paul goes back to the fall in Genesis 3. And if you want to understand how Satan works, he's not changed his strategy. As Jesus says, he's the father of lies. He is skilled at the art of deception. Now, folks, when we say he's skilled at the art of deception, that means he is so subtle that you can barely notice it. Like a snake in the grass or in the woods is able to camouflage itself. In Genesis 3, we learn that the serpent was more crafty than every other creature God had made. If you were deceived, would you know it? Of course not. That's the whole point. You're deceived. Satan is so subtle. Satan is not the devil of Hollywood. The devil of Hollywood is, is out there and scary and frightening and... Uh, clearly evil. That, that, that's not the devil of the Scriptures. The devil of the Scriptures is someone you would never pick out of the lineup. 
And what he whispers is so close to the truth, yet over time leads you miles away from Jesus. Guard your heart from deception. Eve said in Genesis 3.13, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, how skilled at deception would you need to be to take someone who'd never sinned and never known sin, who had perfect knowledge and righteousness, and deceive them into casting off her virginity of purity and devotion to Christ. Satan in Genesis 3 tempts Adam and Eve to doubt God's heart. And if Satan can deceive us that we begin to doubt God's heart, then he knows that we'll go after other loves during our betrothal. First thing Satan did was say, can you trust God's word? Did God really say? And we live in an age where so many Christians are doubting God's word. Oh, there are Christians that will say, well, I believe the salvation verses. I believe the scriptures that talk about how to know Christ. Although many are even doubting whether Jesus is the only one. The only way. And then there's so many Christians that say, well, I believe the salvation verses about Jesus, but I don't believe what he says about sex. I don't believe what he says about gender. I don't believe what he says about divorce. I don't believe he says what he says about fill in the blank. How are you in danger of being deceived? Because Satan is saying to you, did God really say? Is that, is that really God's word? I mean, all of it? Really? And then Satan likes to deceive us by tempting us that God's not good. Satan made God appear harsh. Did God say you couldn't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Now, that's ridiculous. There were thousands of trees. God said you just couldn't eat from one. And Eve tries to battle that deception. But the enemy is always whispering deceiving lies about God. You know, you, you might ask for a loaf, but he's going to give you a stone. You, you might ask for a fish, but he's really going to give you a snake. And if you begin to doubt God's goodness, it won't be long till you compromise your virginity. And then Satan says, does God really have your best in mind? He's holding out on you. He knows that if you eat of it, you'll become like him. And how often are we deceived in thinking that we already are like God? That we know better. Our opinions are as important as anybody else's. Look at verse 14. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Please, please hear this today. I'm going to go back to what I said earlier. If Satan was in a lineup, you'd miss him every time. He disguises himself as an angel of light. 
And he has servants who masquerade as servants of righteousness. You know, Paul seems to be saying, and of course it's true in Corinth, that Satan does a lot of his masquerading work in the church. And perhaps even through the church. In 2 Corinthians 4, we learn that Satan can blind the minds of unbelievers. If Satan has the power to blind the minds of unbelievers, then certainly he has the power and the capacity to seek to deceive the minds of people betrothed to Jesus. But in verse 13, Paul reminds us, such men, such teaching, they're false apostles, they're deceitful workmen, they're disguising as apostles of Christ, and they are skilled masqueraders. It isn't like some masquerade ball where people look crazy. These are people masquerading as biblical teachers, talking about the gospel, talking about the Spirit, talking about Jesus. But they're deceivers. Verse 15, Paul says, their end will correspond to their deeds. In other words, they will be unmasked. And part of living the Christian life is learning how to unmask deceivers. I don't know if you've ever seen any of the Mission Impossible movies uh, starring Tom Cruise, but there's one of the coolest things in every one of the movies. Uh, where they, they have this uh, face recognition software, and then they have a 3D printer, and somehow they're able to, to print out a perfect likeness of a particular individual. And then they can put it on another person, and it looks just like the person they're posing as. And then there's voice recognition software, and they're able to put a chip on the vocal cords so that the person sounds exactly like the person they're trying to masquerade as. And as you watch the movies, and once you've seen it happen a couple times, you begin to question everybody. And and you're ready at every moment. Is this person going to be unmasked? You begin to doubt everything. Now, except for the Scriptures, that's actually a really good approach to life. We should doubt everyone to some extent. And be like the Berean Christians in the book of Acts who examined the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying is true. The other thing I would say is it's a whole lot easier to deceive someone living in isolation than it is to deceive someone living in community. You are so much more likely to be deceived when you're living the Christian life on your own. And you are so much less likely to be deceived when you're living out your betrothal in the church among the people of God. And then thirdly, guard your heart from distraction. Look at verse 3. Paul fears that by Satan's cunning, our thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That word sincere means single-minded, single-focused. And pure, of course, relates to virginity. 
that we are not to be distracted from our love for Christ. And and that is exactly what Jesus warns us against. In Matthew 24, verse 12, Jesus says, In the final days, the love of many will grow cold. How, how hot is your love for your fiancé this morning? How strongly is your passion for Christ burning? What's the flame level? And Jesus then warns the Ephesians church in, Ephesians, in Revelation 2 verse 4. Jesus says, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. You don't have the same love you had at first. Through the betrothal period, rather than your love increasing every day, it's decreasing. Of how many of us is that the case? There's several things that distract us from loving Christ in this text. First of all, there are money issues. In, in verses 7 through 12, uh, <clears throat> Paul, even though he has a right to raise support from the Corinthians, he's chosen not to. Instead, he's chosen to get offerings from the Macedonian churches, Philippi and Thessalonica, because he doesn't want to burden the Corinthians, and because the false teachers are saying that they are to receive gifts from the Corinthians, and they're saying that the reason Paul doesn't receive gift is because his message isn't worth it. The reason why we charge you so much, the false teacher said, is because our message is so valuable. And Paul pushes back and says, that's foolishness. I'm not the least inferior to the super apostles in Jerusalem, and I certainly have every right to receive monies from you, but I'm not going to burden you. And it leads to the larger application of money issues in particular. If I've seen one thing that draws people's hearts away from Jesus during the betrothal period, it's money, it's possessions, it's materialism. Are you letting money get in the way of your love for Christ? Is it a distraction to your love for Jesus? And then, of course, again in verse 12, we, we learn that the, the false teachers are trying, to, are trying to say that they are the ones the Corinthians should be following. And Paul's trying to undermine the claim of those. And again, we get into this celebrity status. Uh, I don't know. Have y'all noticed this? This whole celebrity Christian thing, I don't remember it ever being like this. People are following the latest fad, the latest church, the latest teacher, the latest teaching. People are church hopping all over the place, going after celebrities. And it is incredibly distracting. And then, of course, there's relational tension. The the false teachers are trying to create division between the Corinthians and Paul, and how are relational tensions distracting us from our first love these days? How heated have you gotten in discussions with other Christians over politics recently? How heated have you gotten with other Christians over how to treat COVID recently? Satanic distractions. 
seeking to lead us astray from devotion to Christ. Little shibboleths. You remember that story in Judges where the rest of the tribes of Israel were fighting Ephraim because of their sin and they wanted to kill off the entire tribe. It was awful. Civil war among the people of God. And for some reason, the Ephraimites couldn't say Shibboleth. They always said Siboleth. So they put up guards at a bridge. And before they'd let anyone pass over alive, they'd say, say the word Shibboleth. And the Ephraimites couldn't say it. They said Siboleth, and so they were put to death easily. How are we doing that in the church today? Say it my way. Believe like I do. Now, folks, on the basics and the foundational elements of the Christian life, we cannot compromise. But there are so many shibboleths in the church today where, frankly, God has allowed the conscience to be free. And in our insecurity, we're seeking to bind the consciences of others. And it causes our love to grow cold. Many of us know that I love the Chronicles of Narnia. And in the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the, when the four children first get into Narnia, uh, the leader of, uh, one of the leaders of the children is, is the older sister named Susan. And she becomes Queen Susan. She helps free Narnia from the power of the White Witch through the grace and power of Aslan, along with her older brother Peter. In the last book, The Last Battle, all of the characters that have been in the Chronicles of Narnia from our world, they're all going into heaven with all the animals who are also going into Narnia. They're one and the same at the end. And one character is suspiciously absent. It's Susan. You see, Susan, as she grew up in our world, no longer believed in the reality of a great king. And she no longer believed in the blessedness of a special land. And she's finally addressed, her plight, her fate is addressed at the end of the book because Peter is asked where Susan is. And Peter said, my sister Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia. She thinks that all of our adventures are just fancy children's games. It's one of the saddest moments in the entire story of the Chronicles of Narnia. And I can tell you as a pastor, it's also one of the saddest stories I face as people in the church are seduced and deceived and distracted away from their first love, 
to whom they have been betrothed. May it not happen by God's grace to us. Let's pray. Father, if we are dabbling with being seduced or deceived or distracted, pour out your grace and spirit. God, may we never leave Jesus, the true Jesus. May we never leave the crucified life. May we never leave the spirit. God, may we never leave the gospel. Lord, if there's anybody here who doesn't know Christ, might today be the day of their salvation. And God, enable us to guard our hearts that we might be presented as pure virgins to Christ on that final day. In Jesus' name, amen.